Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. We're so excited to have you with us today. I'm in the studio with Kevin. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. And Josh. Josh Benson, rocking it from Marion, Illinois. Hey, Danielle. Oh, hi. It's Danielle Van Hook from the Alton and McLean Community Center. Brian. And Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. And I'm Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. We're going to jump into our interview in just a moment with Krista Bradley, the Director of Programs and Resources at APAP, or Association of Performing Arts Professionals. And Krista and I have a very wide-ranging conversation that I hope that you all enjoy when you listen to it. Uh, we cover a lot of ground, but we do talk briefly briefly about the upcoming 2023 conference. And so I want to ask you all, since we've all been to the APAP conference in New York, has there been a specific moment, either professional development in a meeting or socially, that has changed your outlook on the industry or helped you make a better connection or change the way you think kind of about a certain aspect of your job? For me, the closing plenary in January of 2020 was Ben Folds. He specifically talked about improvising live on stage and how the audience gives him the cue to rock this bitch, that (laughs) he jumps in and he does this amazing masterful thing where he improvises and composes something with a full orchestra on stage live, but he does it knowing that the audience doesn't expect it to be good. They just want it to be new and improvised. And it gives him that freedom to fail and freedom to create And that so many amazing new melodies have come from that and new things that have tied into new songs have come from that. And I personally, as a creative, have locked onto that so much and have seen those spaces where I have a freedom to fail because of the support that's around me or the people that are around me or the community that's supporting me in a certain way. And that clarity came from that point in APAP. And it's been not just a game changer, but kind of a life changer for me, because that's where my mural career came from. That's where the newest video project that I'm working on came from, from just acknowledging that freedom to fail and being able to jump into it. Yeah. Similarly, I saw the keynote with Ira Glass um, at APAP, and he sort of talks about, you know, the success of Serial and how it allowed a lot of influx in cash to let them experiment and really this takeaway of, you know, don't take yourself too seriously, um, as well as, you know, this concept that, you know, theater and the arts is trying is, is trying to make, uh, as he said, lightning strike in the same place twice, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but yeah, it just, it helped me sort of realize that, you know, I don't need to take myself so, so seriously and it's okay to experiment and sometimes okay to fail. I'll also throw in that at my first APAP, when I, uh, started at the theater. So my first APAP on my own, um, I was very nervous and my first meeting was with Simon Shaw and Simon could tell that I was nervous. And so instead of honestly taking that meeting seriously, uh, he read me the storybook of Elephant and Piggy uh, because I never (laughs) heard the story. So I've got this great photo of Simon uh, reading to me at my first APAP meeting. (laughs) And what a great story. (laughs) Elephant and Piggy series is the best. Yeah, it was it was really great. It's a memory that I'll that I'll uh, like cherish and I'll, I'll always think about. 
So I uh, was super fortunate in my undergrad that I got to attend the APEP conference as a volunteer and I worked very hard, but it also allotted me a lot of opportunity to explore and to just sort of figure it all out. My junior year, we were all in the process of figuring out what our capstone projects would be in our senior year. And I got a little bit of permission and leeway to book my own show as part of that capstone. And there was, there was mentoring involved and, you know, I, there was definitely oversight, but I ended up, you know, meeting with, um, an artist in a booth at APAP, seeing their showcase, just really being excited about the work that they were doing, feeling like it would fit in our theater. They had all these great outreach programs, um, and different ways I was going to be able to engage with the campus and the community. And, you know, after that meeting, I saw the contract. I certainly didn't sign it or, you know, do any of the more technical aspects of that. But I saw the process of meeting at APAP, getting the contract, getting all of the other outreach stuff scheduled and and advancing and, and doing all of it alongside a mentor. And I knew that I wanted to be in the presenting world before that, but that just solidified that this is the thing that I'm going to do. I'm having a hard time picking just one because honestly, there's been so many to go along with what Kevin was saying with his first APAP. I remember clearly my first APAP and that overwhelming feeling and and feeling alone because I, where I was working at the time, it was a very isolated, so siloed place. Um, none of the other venues in my region wanted to share or communicate or anything. I reached out to them when I was new. And, you know, I, I show up at this conference thinking everybody's like that and that I was on my own. And suddenly, somewhere in my first day, I run into um, Kevin Spencer, who I had worked with at my venue, and his assistant at the time named Keith. And I apologize, Keith, I forgot your last name. It's been a few years because he actually uh, isn't in the industry anymore. But um, Keith remembered me and came up and said hi to me and invited me to come to a social gathering afterwards with Kevin and a bunch of other people. And it became the most amazing thing and it opened me up and I met a lot of amazing sharing people and it instantly, it's weird to say, but it instantly felt like family, which when I first arrived, everybody was talking about how, oh, APAP's just a big family of industry professionals. And and I didn't feel when I first arrived and I felt like an outsider and I didn't belong there until that moment that, that Keith invited me in and I was like, wow, this is so cool. And it's just gotten better ever since. I have a Kevin Spencer story, actually, for my first <laughs> APAP conference. Um, so the first one I went to, I was part of the Emerging Leaders program, and it was the only way I was going to get to conference was to go through a program like that, just because I was not in a leadership position. I was artist relations management, contract management. Um, so I advocated for myself, got myself to that conference, and that the ELI program was transformational for me. I met so many people that in my generation, I guess, of future industry professionals that have the same mindset as me in, in terms of leadership style and what we want to accomplish as arts professionals. And be living in Traverse City in Northern Michigan at the time, there was nobody like that um, in, my, in my professional world. Um, and so that was hugely influential and gave me a lot to work with and a lot to think about. But I was also headed into my new job at Midland Center for the Arts, like literally was going to move and start a new job two weeks after the conference in community engagement. And I think this was just meant to be every single 
PD session at that conference was exactly what I needed to set the table for this new role that I was taking on. And in particular, Kevin Spencer gave a session at that conference about sensory-friendly programming and all the work he's doing with the neurodivergent community. And that sort of programming had not reached Northern Michigan yet. It was not something we were having conversations about. Sitting in that session and hearing him talk about it and learning really the intricacies of how to develop that programming for your community, again, hugely transformational. Thank you all for sharing. I think this actually flows really nicely into all the things that you're going to hear Krista and I talk about in our conversation. I do want to note that there was some unscheduled construction happening in the background (laughs) during our chat. So you're going to hear like a circular saw or something in the background um, during the latter half of our interview. Um, But thanks to Josh and Brian for their editing wizardry. Um, It's not too noticeable. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Krista Bradley. I'm Director of Programs and Resources at the Association of Performing Arts Professionals in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Krista. It's so wonderful to have you here on There's No Business Like. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Um, I'm so excited to have you today and talk about all the things that you do with Association of Performing Arts Professionals, also known as APAP, how you got into the industry, and a few other things that we have planned for our chat today. So thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Let's just start with your origin story. I would love to know how did you get into the arts uh, and how did you end up being at APAP today? Wow. How long do we have? (laughs) I've seen your resume. It's quite extensive. So, (laughs) Well, I have practiced music making for a long time. Um, So I am a musician. I am a chamber music singer. I, I am a pianist. Um, I studied dance for a long time. So um, the arts were a big part of my growing up. Even in college, I was in the chorus that, that toured internationally and I was co-tour manager. And looking back, I thought, well, I think I was kind of doing presenting and touring back in college when I was raising funds for the international tour of the chorus and figuring out where we should actually go and all that stuff. But in any case, when I left Brown, I was, I had accepted a job at Ogilvy and Mather, a a PR and marketing firm in New York city. And after college, I was supposed to start in the fall. And that year I had come across a couple of internship books that included things about arts administration. Like there was something with the Aspen music festival. And I thought, well, what's that? Let's start to, that sounds really kind of up my alley. And um, I never really pursued it. But when I came home to Norfolk, where my parents were living, there was an opera company there called the Virginia Opera. And I went to them cold and asked them, do you have any internship opportunities? I'd just love to explore what this arts administration thing is, even though I'm, I'm leaving to move to New York in the fall. And I was a writer and thought I was into marketing and PR. They didn't have anything in marketing and PR, but they had something in education and touring. Um, And so I said, sure, that was kind of my summer gig. And I interned for them for about six weeks. And then they said, would you like to be the the coordinator of education and touring at our company? And I thought, well, this is really fun. I'd like to try that. And I asked Ogilvy and Mather, can I defer and start my work in January? And they let me do that. I loved cold calling people to do tours. I loved figuring out ways to do curriculum for teachers and students to kind of connect um, the arts to their everyday life and the things that they were learning. Um, And it was all really new for me, um, but it it tapped into a a big creative 
part of my brain in terms of how do I build relationships and get people to close the deal on a, a touring engagement so that they would actually have um, Virginia Opera Touring come to their space? And how can I better serve students and our community by making the arts really accessible and making it feel like it had something to do with their lives? Um, because for me, the arts were such a big part of my life growing up. So anyway, the, the long story short is that I loved that work. And um, they then asked me to be director of education and touring. And I turned down the job in New York. Um, and then I was there for four years and went to an Opera America conference where I made some comment in a public plenary, which was, you know, people like to say that that was my star is born moment because people were like, who is that person? Um, and uh, that led to me being recruited to Houston Grand Opera when they had an opening for a director of community engagement. And I did that for many years and then came to Opera America, served there, which was my first stint in the service organization world, which I loved. Um, I loved being at the national level, being able to kind of see all the different things that were happening around the country and making sense out of the trends that were happening. I spend most of my time in opera working with new works and commissioning work. And, and part of that job included doing a, a stint with Bill T. Jones, um, the, the amazing choreographer who we commissioned to do a dance opera at Houston Grand Opera. And we hit it off so well. He contacted me when they got a, a, a large grant for um, building audiences around the country and asked if I would be their audience development consultant on that project. Um, and so I said yes. And um, I started launching a consulting business. I didn't, you know, and, and I did that for several years working on audience development, building new audiences, expanding audiences. That was kind of my my jam, even at Opera America. I did that for a while and worked for lots of presenters and then stepped out of the field for a while because I wasn't sure if I was making as big of a difference in the world as I wanted to. Um, so I did some philanthropy. I did some stuff with HIV and AIDS. I did stuff with uh, women's issues and then um, got pulled back into the arts when Mid-Atlantic Arts Foundation was looking for a program officer. Had my first stint engaging with APAP as a participant and curating rosters of uh, tours for the Mid-Atlantic presenters to present. I was reading this application from an organization. And I'm like, why aren't they doing these things? Or why aren't they doing this? It seems so obvious to me. I thought, well, why, why aren't you doing it? Like, if you have these ideas, then maybe you should do this. And then this, this, this organization, BlackRock, Center for the Arts, was looking for an executive director. So I applied and uh, I got the job and I was there for six years as a executive and artistic director and um, joined the board of APAP um, while I was there to represent the small and mid-sized presenters. And then my good friend and colleague, Scott Stoner, who was the director of programs here at APAP, decided to retire. And um, I had to go to Mario and say, I know I'm on the board, but I kind of would like to do that job. That's a long way to share how I took a circuitous route um, to here, but um, it all turned out really well. And yeah. I really appreciate how multifaceted your career has been. Podcast listeners will have heard me say this maybe before or in future episodes. I don't know when, but like for me, life is a zigzag and that's something I've had to really learn. It's not a straight line. We kind of come into the world and we're told you go from A to B and there's nothing in between, but it's actually like A to A.1 to A.6 to B, you know, it's the, it's not a straight line and every experience builds on top of each other. Um, so I love hearing that 
you started in the arts, you followed a passion, you felt like I need to do something different. You came back to it. Um, but all those experiences build. And so thank you for sharing that because I think it's a great example of like, you can do many things over the course of a career in a lifetime. And you should, um, you know, I think that's really important. Every job has taught me something, um, that I've built on or taught me things that I don't like or things that I am really good at. Um, and if you don't explore, then you're not going to ever kind of have that, that opportunity. So I, I totally, agree with you about the zigzagginess of life um, and the, the randomness or maybe not randomness of people coming into your life and helping to shape um, or open up doors or help you rethink um, really what your gifts are and help you help to direct your, your path. So both of those are great. Did you have um, somebody like that in, especially in your early career that helped you kind of figure out where you wanted to go next. Cause in listening to your path, it's like, well, this opportunity kind of presented itself or you, you know, you made this comment, this plenary that kind of put you maybe in a different direction. So was there someone that you had that helped guide you through that, that you could say like, Hey, I'm not sure what the next step is, um, or mentor, you know, or somebody in your life that helped you. Yeah. My first boss at Virginia opera, um, we've been friends for 25, 30 plus years. She was really instrumental. Faye Bailey, Tim, who came from the orchestra world and worked for Baltimore symphony orchestra for many years and did a lot of stuff with the league before she moved into opera. But she was great for me being a new person, a new professional working in the arts, just helping me um, write better, helping me understand the dynamics of meetings, helping me craft my comments in meetings to make sure that I was heard. That was a very early lesson, but she was great about coaching me in that regard and giving me uh, a lot of confidence in my ideas. I tend to have a lot of ideas <laughs> um, and I am a creative thinker. What was so lovely is to have somebody alongside encouraging that, even if the idea turned out to not be a great one, the fearlessness that you build and trying to just move forward and expand an idea and see if this will work to um, engage people or will this be a really good programming idea around a particular work. It was great. So that was, that was encouraging and I would say the other person that was instrumental was Mickey Shepard, a luminary in the live performing arts world as a producer, as a presenter, as an impresario. Um, she ran 651 and then the Apollo and was involved with major uh, festivals um, in New York this the last couple of years and just as an amazing leader in the field. And I got the opportunity to work with her very early on when I was at Opera America, building, um, regranting programs for the Wallace Fund. And she was one of our consultants and just being able to have the opportunity to think with her around particular issues around audiences and connecting work with audiences in a, in a interesting way and um, really leaning into the role of the artist in that was great. And she's been a friend and colleague ever since. So um, those are two people that stick out. And Mario Garcia Durham, who um, I, I met when I was at Houston Grand Opera, and many people don't know that, but um, when he was uh, volunteering for the Houston International Festival. So um, he's been a, a friend and colleague for many years. And um, I would say that the, those three people, along with so many others, uh, you know, along the way, um, both peers and, and, uh, 
and leaders have been great for me. Are there any lessons or advice that they gave you along that pathway that you hold on to and you return to over and over? Yeah, I think that um, don't be afraid to speak up. That was really important. And, you know, your ideas are maybe uh, different, but they're ones that are unique. So you should run with them. It was kind of a reverse story with Mario because he got an opportunity to go to Yerba Buena. Um, he was working in the banking field in Houston. And when he got that opportunity, he was like, I'm not sure whether I should take it. And I was the one that was like, you need to take it, you know, <laughs> uh, you need to take that job. And, and, and what goes around comes around. It was great to, to see, you know, his path and then to have an opportunity to work alongside him and with him um, and be hired by him um, in, a, in a new position. Well, thank you for sharing about these long-term relationships. I think it's so much value in understanding them, reflecting back and and finding the the those moments of like clarity when you're working with someone and then thinking about how do we pass that on to the next generation? How do I then be step into those mentorship shoes and help foster the same kind of relationships with the next generation? I think there's so much power in that. There is. And I was sharing with you earlier, I kind of am in denial that I have actually moved into that, <laughs> that period. I, I don't <laughs> always remember that. I, I don't always remember my age and how long I've been in the field um, and still kind of sort of see myself somewhere between 38 and 42, 43. And I'm, I'm not there anymore. <laughs> um, but um, I suppose I've been in the field long enough to be considered a mentor. And, you know, I, I, I'm thinking a lot about people's legacies and, and my own legacy and just um, our responsibility to um, make it easier for uh, people that are alongside us and in a different level or a different um, space in their career. That's really important to me right now. Just how do we make it easier as a programmer and a presenter, there's not a lot of codified training, um, practical training, right? There's, there's wonderful arts administration programs that, that prepare people for working in the arts. Um, but in terms of this unique field and the art and craft of uh, presenting and touring, there are a lot of nuances around, around that. And we don't always <laughs> learn it. And I think APAP is in a, in a great position to help uh, codify much of that. And it, this is nothing new. APAP has played a role in, in um, shaping the profession of presenting and touring for years. Um, thanks to Van Taylor and Bill Dawson and um, all the people that, that followed them, Susie Farr, the people that have led this organization have, have understood how important it is to professionalize this industry and to provide an on-ramp and important flagpoles uh, mm-hmm. around how you do this job well and how you do it effectively. And I know a lot of people who have come up through APAP have sort of come up through APAP and, and their career because of the programs that we've provided. So just thinking about how do we provide programs that allow that to happen, but also how do we individually have a role to give back and to shape people's paths because we're all, you know, we're, things are evolving too. So, but there's, there's a great amount of wisdom, I think that exists in the field right now. And um, even though things have changed, though the ground has changed underneath all of us, there's uh, wisdom in the work that you do and in the experiences that you've had, whether you've been in the field for 30, 40 years or 10. So I'm really excited about the ability to, to get back and for people to mentor both ways. It's not all about mentoring younger folks. 
Well, and you don't have to feel bad about forgetting your age because <laughs> students of mine from when, from my very first theater management job, kids that were in my youth theater program are now working professionals in the field. Yeah. And I see them, they're going on and they're doing amazing things as yes. lighting designers and technical designers and they're running high school theater programs and all of these things. And I'm like, there's no way you're old enough. <laughs> There's no way. Oh, they are. Oh, they are. Uh, <laughs> but that is also so fulfilling, right? You're talking it about is. like long-term relationships and passing on knowledge and energy and, and pipeline and all of these things that we talk about. And when you do see your students who started with you in sixth grade now working in the field, and I don't know, there's some magic there and you see people that you have built relationships with being really successful and following their dreams and making an impact, making change. Like, I don't know. That's like the ultimate dream, I guess. Yeah. It's so great. And, and you know, the longer that you're in this field, the more that you have these relationships where you see people evolving in their careers. That's also quite meaningful. You've had many different roles. So where in that journey, did you really start to hone your philosophy and approaching the arts? Like, was there a certain moment or a certain job that really started solidifying or clarifying for you how you wanted to approach the field? There are a couple of big learning moments, I think, that happened. One was um, when I was in Houston Grand Opera. This was a position that was created to help that organization build stronger ties to communities that were diverse. That was the term that was used then, code word, you know, hey, this is a mainstream organization that needs to diversify uh, its staff and board and programming. And so um, part of that was programmatic, where we commissioned a lot of new work from Latinx writers, uh, queer writers, different disciplines in terms of genres like Bill T. Jones and, and engaging dance. And my job was to both help with the the programming of those new works, but also use them to connect to communities um, there. And Houston's a very diverse community with many languages and many people from different countries and many cultures and ethnicities that are there. I remember someone suggesting that I just come up with ideas for how to do this. I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. You have to go to the people that you're trying to engage with to find out what they want and what they need and what they care about. You can't do that in a vacuum. It didn't make any sense to me to try to want to engage in community without asking what the community members wanted and what they cared about and to learn kind of what are the things that were um, important and who were the people that were important so that we could find a way to engage more meaningfully. I hope I've continued to bring into my work everywhere is asking the questions, learning more about what is existing because it has value, who is important in that community and sort of taking a, a humble approach. We talked about cultural humility a little bit. How do you approach and engage with a community or a group of people that who may be new to you and do it authentically and do it um, in a way that appreciates and is open to the things that they care about and value, and then figure out what you're doing connects with that. The other piece that's important at BlackRock, I, as a presenter, I loved being able to discover work and artists who I thought were doing amazing work and present that to the community as a bit of a gift, while also trying to find work that I knew would be relevant and resonate for that community. Really fascinated by this conversation, curatorial practices 
areas where the aspirational programming meets what people need. Yes. Uh, entertainment versus inspiration. We can be more than one thing in a venue. We can be entertainment because people need fun. They need a night out. They need social engagement with their friends and family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But also we feel an obligation to program other things that are going to spark the deep conversations, make people experience the world in different ways. So for you as at, in that executive director role, how did you balance those that tension? I think you can do both. I mean, it really comes comes down to budget. <laughs> it comes down to budget and what can you do that's going to allow you opportunities to engage your audience and your community in really fun and, and amazing ways that you know will help cover some of the other things that are important that you want to do. I think it's a fine balance, but I think it can completely be done and And I think there's work out there and there are artists that are doing really a range of work that can feed that. And you know what? An audience isn't isn't monolithic. You know, I think one of the things that I discovered in trying to do circus or work that was more uh, reflective of social justice and issues that were critical around race or identity or that was just really great music that was that had not been heard and people didn't know who these artists were but I'm like they're doing amazing work and really you should hear them anyway so you mentioned the term cultural humility a few minutes ago um, and I read that term in an interview you did with the legendary Donna Walker Coon. It really struck me. Can we go a little bit deeper into what that means? It's rooted in curiosity, asking questions and not making assumptions about how I walk in the world or how I see the world or the things that are important to me culturally are the same for everybody else. Meaning that with, I wonder what's different. You know, I wonder how my lens is different than this other person. How do I approach this in a, in a way that is, as a writer called beginner's mind? Um, you don't know anything about this particular person or culture or, or topic, and there's a curiosity and a hunger for learning that gives you the ability to really fully immerse yourself into um, what that might be without any preconceived notions or preconceived ideas about what it what you think it is. So I think cultural humility is being able to put your expectations and your assumptions in the backseat and being curious and being willing to listen and learn and approach difference in a way that is um, exciting. And yeah, I've had the privilege to be an administrator, a programmer, an arts administrator, uh, a funder. And one of the the things that I learned and read years ago in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which I thought was so important. Um, and it was more for funders, but I think it's really important for any one of us in, um, that's a gatekeeper or that is in a position of power. It was basically encouraging any program officer, any person that's working in philanthropy to step out of the field after five to seven years and to go back in the field because it's very easy to get comfortable where you are and how you see things. And it's important to sharpen the edge, you know, and to get back out into the field and as a practitioner to ensure that you are um, keeping up with the things that are critical that you're also uh, not getting too comfortable. And I think, you know, we don't, we as humans are not great with discomfort, um, but, um, but discomfort usually breeds growth and 
a, a new lens on the way that you work and, and uh, learning. So that's another just lesson I would just raise up. It's important to um, to shift your perspective so that you bring a different um, and broader lens to your work. You know, one of the reasons why I wanted to work at BlackRock is that I wanted to be able to spend time um, as a practitioner so that I could better serve the field. Um, so, um, yeah, so I just wanted to lift that up because I think it's good to shake things up in your career. I think people can honestly relate to that, though, about needing to maybe step away and then come back and, and bringing a different perspective or getting new perspective on the, the work that they love the most. I think it's actually really healthy. Yeah, it's totally healthy, whether you're forced to do it or whether it's like or you want to do it. Both of them are are really helpful strategies for bringing a different lens to your work and, and encouraging your own growth on um, I think you'll be a richer person for it. I love this because it's a perfect segue because my next question was, what does a service to the field organization do? What does that mean? And then what is your role in that as a program director uh, at, at APAP or program director in general? Like, what is that role? Sure. Well, um, APAP, it, you know, is, is the National Service Membership and Advocacy Organization for the Live Performing Arts. What does that mean? There are trade associations for every industry. And we are kind of like a trade association in terms of understanding what the issues are for our, our members, you know, the people that are working in our industry, what are the factors that impact their work, what makes it easy for them to thrive, what are the things that are getting in the way of them thriving, how are we addressing those issues, both from a systems perspective with advocacy to a uh, programmatic approach with um, learning and uh, education and professional development. How are we leading and supporting the field um, so that it is both ready for trends that are coming down the pike, but also um, has the, the skills and resources to, to meet that moment? Um, and how do we facilitate connection uh, across the field? I mean, our, our mission at APAP is really to develop and support a robust performing arts presenting, booking, and touring industry uh, and the professionals who work within it. That's, I mean, it's pretty simple, right? So as a service organization, we are charged with serving members, scanning the field, serving the field with information, knowledge, resources that helps it better make decisions and work in the field. We are a convener of the field, APAP and our sister organizations like Dance USA and Theater Communications Group and Chamber of Music America. Um, we're known for convening our industry. It's the one time when you bring all facets of the, of the field together. And that kind of convener role is so critical in our field, both before, during, and after the pandemic, right? Because um, so much of the work that we do is, is dependent on relationships. Um, so we foster and facilitate those relationships through events like the APEP NYC conference, through networking and affinity groups that we do year round, through intensives and other professional development that we're offering year round to other convenings that we do and um, that are linked to other events like our regional arts organizations or special festivals that happen. So service organizations are there to serve the field writ large, to provide data, information, resources, support. Uh, to help the field do better, but it's also for APAP, we're there to help members thrive and do business more effectively and more efficiently so that they're successful. 
for my job, I am the director of programs and resources. So anything programmatic that is serving our members is kind of falls under um, our umbrella as a team. We work across the team all, all the time, but programmatically, that means that all the conference programming falls under um, our purview with in partnership with the field and with several committees, our conference committee, our year-round committees. Um, we work very closely with them to ensure that we're hearing and getting the perspective of members and then helping to um, create programs and sessions and professional development that serve them in the moment. It also means um, identifying trends in the field and kind of scanning the field and seeing and making connections across the field which is probably the reason I'm a dork about service organizations because I like being at that um, purview where you can see things happening in Iowa or in Texas or New England and Massachusetts and DC and see that there are people that you've come across that need to connect with each other. So you're fostering relationships or helping to like you, you're doing this, so you should really connect to this other person. And I am a definitely a connector by, by nature. So that's really great. But then being able to see the trends, because oftentimes as a, as a professional arts worker, we're, our, our heads are down, we're doing the work we're doing, we're getting, we're getting stuff done, right? We're solving problems. We're figuring that out. And so, um, oftentimes we don't have our head up to see what other things are happening, um, in the field among our peers. And that's where a service organization can be very helpful because our job is to keep our finger on the pulse of um, different places around the country so that we can maybe provide that insight and um, relationship building and news for for you as, as members and people in the field. Anyway, service organizations are important uh, to the industry because they're, they advocate for a particular segment of the industry. They can speak with um, a broader voice for the industry, particularly ones like APAP. The live performing arts industry is very diverse. We have commercial for-profit organizations. Um, we have nonprofit organizations. We've got municipal organizations. We've got small businesses with our agents and managers. Um, we've got small businesses with our our touring artist companies and individual artists. And we like to say that we're a big tent because of that. And that also makes us a powerful voice to amplify that that group of people and the impact that they they have in communities. You do have your finger on the pulse. I know this for certain. Uh, I, I see you. I see you all <laughs> over the place, Krista, in all sorts of different meetings and convenings. So what has caught your eye or ear uh, most recently? What's getting you excited? in the moment? What's a conversation that you're just like really jazzed about and you want to keep engaging with? The pandemic has changed the way that people um, think about their role in the world. I, uh, both organizationally and individually, I am very excited about the power of the arts worker. Um, right now, I'm excited about the changes that we're calling for in terms of the workplace. Um, to be much more conducive and balanced, um, to encourage uh, um, workers to have better work-life balance. Um, I think that we live in an industry that glorifies um, sacrifice and putting yourself second and living for your art so that it supersedes all else. And that is not sustainable. 
and it is not healthy. And I think that we we discovered or rediscovered some of that during the pandemic. So I'm excited about that shift and wanting to champion those changes. That's really, really important to me personally and professionally. I think it's, you know, um, we love the work that we do and uh, we shouldn't have to um, sacrifice our health or our well-being for doing it. Um, and I think there are better ways to work. And I'm excited about the experiments that some of our organizations are taking. You know, how are they doing less? How are they budgeting in such a way that they can provide better salaries for folks? Or how can they change schedules so that people that are working all over the weekend can actually still have time off, including their production tech staff? I'm excited about the racial reckoning that's um, long overdue in our industry and our field and the major shifts and strides that many people are making inside and outside of the live performing arts industry. And the fact that it's for many people, this is not a season <laughs> um, of change. I mean, it is a season of change, but it's a is a long-term sustainable change. It's it's not an easy change. So I know that that's a challenge for some folks. It's also exciting to see change happen and to see shifts of resources so that people, uh, artists, individuals, ways of seeing the world can be lifted up in ways that they were not, not at the expense or the detriment of, of others, but equal and recalibrated so that that's, you know, we can all kind of have our stories told. We can all work in a more sustainable way and safer ways. And that's, that's exciting for me. And I'm excited that we're opening up our borders. I want to see more artists uh, and international cultural exchange get back to where we were. It's easier to, to uh, support artists moving across borders, but it's also more sustainable for um, our organizations and for artists that are touring to tour across borders. I'm very concerned about sustainability in our field. That seems to be the thing that is a constant question right now. And I'm excited about what people are trying to do, both not, not just, you know, green touring or slow touring, but just how does our whole industry become more sustainable, both the people in it and the way that we do our work um, and the way that we make decisions. And then the other piece I would say that I'm excited about is data because I'm a dork. Um, uh, but I, um, but I'm a smart dork. <laughs> um, and I, what I, what I think is important is that we are at a point where we need more information, um, and more research to make more informed decisions in a very dynamic environment that we're in. Agreed. APAP is trying to do more in that regard and using its footprint to and resources to invest in things like the salary survey that you know, for our industry, which I think is hopefully will be a game changer, um, both in advocacy and in information to help us drive change in decision making. But um, we, we need research on audiences right now. We need research on um, uh, donors right now. That kind of uh, drive for more informed decision-making, I think is really exciting. Yes. Okay. This is an audio podcast, so you all can't see this, but I'm like nodding my head with with every point Chris is making because it, it <laughs> resonates so much. And I'm excited about some of the thing, same things, but to your point about sustainability, like none of those changes come without a really hard look and changes in how we treat arts workers, Absolutely. right? And how we 
relate with each other and meeting in the middle and finding those shared values around <laughs> sustainability of just people. Yes. Uh, and that for me, that's kind of the core of all that. And all these other things follow in line, but you, if we're all burnt out and we're all leaving, we can't make any of these other changes, right? That's right. I know you're gearing up for conference APAP 2023. So what do you want people to walk away with? Like what's your number one wish for folks walking away from conference? Inspiration, energy, joy, reconnection. You know, the, the pillars of our conference and our year-round programming, it's all about, you know, community, commerce, learning, and discovery. So... We want people to connect with new folks, with old folks. We want people to discover and new um, allies and amazing artists and um, new partners in business. You know, we're also, we're all working so hard. It's been a really tough two years and we just need to love on each other. I think, you know, to be perfectly honest, we just people need to be in each other's company. We need to hug. We need to have drinks. We need to like, go dancing <laughs> and see some good work on the side, you know? Yeah, of course, see the work, but you know, the social piece <laughs> of this is really, really important. Our, our conference committee was very clear, right? We want to, we want to create space for getting work done, getting business done, seeing work, making meetings and, and, and booking things. And we also need to have fun and we need to have time to, yes, it's networking, but it's also just socializing and having, you know, time together. So, um, and this is where you get re-energized in a, in a much bigger way. And, and, and it means so much more now after three years. So I think, you know, people leave, um, inspired, um, energized with new connections and new business, um, then it will be a successful conference for them and for us. Awesome. Well, I think it's going to be a great time. And I know everyone is so excited to see each other in person once again in New York. All right. I have one last question for you, Krista. Think back to when you were going uh, to the opera company and saying, hey, can I do a summer internship uh, and starting on that path? What do you know now that you wish you had known then? Ooh, that's a great question. That your impulses, you know, those those um, those itches that you have, those those questions, still small voices that you have about things that get you excited or things that you think could be really interesting or that um, speak to you in some way are things that you need to listen to always. That is your gut. That is your instinct. That is your inner wisdom that says, yes, that idea is a good one. It may not make a lot of sense to you, but the fact that you have it is something, it's something worthwhile to listen to and then kind of expand on and play out because those are where sort of um, areas of brilliance and new things happen. So if you have an idea for doing something new, or if you have an idea for um, exploring a different career path, or you're curious um, about trying something um, in your organization, don't be afraid to do it because usually those are the things that are worth trying and doing. I think that's great advice for everyone that is just moving forward right now, whatever their role, however long they've been in the field. I, 
I think that's really wonderful advice. So thank you for sharing that. It's my pleasure. Truly. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. Oh my gosh. It's been so wonderful just having some time with you and getting to dig deep um, and learn more about you and the role that you currently play in the field and everything you bring to us. So thank you for all of your service and thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you, Katie. It's been a pleasure. I love Krista. I've loved her for years. I She's been such a great mentor to me. I thought it was funny that um, at one point she says, she guesses she's been in the field long enough to sort of to be considered a mentor. And I'm like, sort of? No, you are a mentor. She's been a mentor to me since I've known her. Um, I, I don't, I was trying to think when I met her. I, I've known her for several years now. I think it was when she was first starting APAP and it, I was attending my first WA and we had sat, to, we sat together at the same new colleagues session table and uh, started chatting then. And um, you know, getting to know each other. And of course I've known her in all these different meetings that we're involved in and things since, but, um, yeah, she's, she's just an incredible person and has so much to offer, um, as you heard in this interview. Yeah. I love what she was talking about of mentoring from all different areas. You think of mentoring as somebody who's been in the field longer than you, that has more experience than you, but you know, peers can be mentors, people that have been in the field younger than you as mentors. And I think that that's so important to start seeing it that way. I always feel like, oh, I don't have enough experience to help anybody else out, but you, you know, you, you forget. And, and even if you don't have the absolute perfect right answer, it's just so much more about talking and the relationship and the figuring it out together and different perspectives. I want mentors from all angles. I experienced this group in a mentoring up type of fashion. I mean, Kevin, Katie, Danielle, sorry, not you, old Brian, but um, everybody else, like you guys have these fresh perspectives that open my eyes to, to different take and a different look on things in the industry that, that I typically wouldn't look at. And so the the mentoring up aspect that she mentioned is alive and well just within within our podcast group here for me and so it's refreshing to hear you guys's take and you guys perspective when it's something that I wouldn't have thought of and hopefully it's helping me to keep a fresh perspective and keep my eyes open that's totally right i feel the same way josh 100% that you guys are all a mentor to me. I consider you guys mentors. And it's not about just to go with what Danielle said, mentoring isn't necessarily having the answers. I would almost like the word coaching better because it's more about, as Josh said, you know, just getting different perspectives, different viewpoints, different experiences. And I think it can come from all different directions, as Krista mentioned, and as, you know, we're talking about now. Yeah, I think, you know, Krista perfectly summed up why we started this podcast. I mean, she talks about that there's a lot of knowledge in this industry um, that should be captured, which is exactly what the conversations that, that led to all this. And speaking of, of knowledge, um, just the conversation about her opera days, um, about, you know, focusing on diversity and creating new works and really just that approach of cultural humility coming at it from more of a place of, of curiosity and questions. And what I loved was her approach of not just, you know, coming into a community and saying, hey, we're going to do this to represent the community as a whole instead of like, what do the people want? Like, go to the people, talk to them to see what their values, morals, et cetera, are that they want to see represented. I thought that was a really great approach. And I had never actually heard the phrase cultural humility, but I mean, it's a it's a great approach to that. I agree. And I, as soon as I heard her say the phrase and then talk about what it meant for her, I was in love with the concept, with the idea of cultural humility, and just the just the the phrase itself is a brilliant way to approach 
um, your programming and your position. I think that's also a great way to frame those conversations within your community. If you're talking about um, cultures that aren't maybe necessarily the overwhelming representative there, she said um, something to the effect of things that are important to me culturally are also probably important to them. And, you know, it's about learning and being curious and figuring out what those things are and, you know, what the differences are like interesting and exciting, but it's like deep down the, the things that are important to all of us are important to all of us. And it, it is wonderful. I love how much experience she has in all different aspects of the field that make her the perfect fit for what she's doing now. She shared, you know, this zigzag of a path that she was on led her back to being in a service organization. And I want to make sure that we highlight that service organizations are a career path for arts professionals as well, um, especially for folks that are young, they're maybe looking for their place in the industry. Um, there's a lot of work to be done across the various service organizations that support and advocate for and bring professional development. And they need people who are smart, who are, have a variety of experiences and can, as Chris was talking about, keep their pulse, their finger on the pulse of the field and bring all that together and, and catalyze that um, for change, right? And, and for gathering and convening people. I also identified with um, her talking about not being comfortable. I know Kevin has spoken to this in earlier podcasts about, um, you know, starting something, creating things and, and the excitement of that challenge. And, and then once things are kind of set on course, it's not as exciting to continue anymore. I want to go off and do the next challenge. And I think maybe it's, I'm not sure if that's what Krista meant, but that's kind of how I took it is in, in my experiences is having that constantly trying to find that challenge and that spark. That concept of discomfort breeding growth, I mean, is is, I mean, exactly the thing that, that, that I sort of live by. I mean, I always, uh, take a moment to, to step out of my comfort zone to make sure that, you know, I, I have that opportunity to grow. I mean, things like we're doing right now. Yeah. And she had mentioned in working in, um, philanthropy that after a couple of years, it's good for people in those roles to get back into the field because you can get comfortable and you can, you know, really lose touch on what is important in the field right now. I think that that's important in every role and in every aspect. And that's sort of what the concept of the sabbatical I think is really all about. And that's a challenge that I'm just going to issue to the field right now is I really think in so many areas, you have a job that you love. You don't necessarily want to job hunt forever, but the opportunity to like go somewhere else for a couple of weeks and maybe even just like help another organization get like another set of hands in there could help freshen up anybody working in any field, philanthropy service, you know, et cetera. We talk a little bit in the conversation about burnout and sustainability for the arts worker um, and, you know, the conversations that are happening in the field and why that's important. Um, but I wanted to connect that to the piece of advice that she gave at the very end when I asked her what she wished she would have known when she was starting out. And that's about having ideas and how valuable your ideas are, whether they are for the now moment or for the future. And I think that's actually a really important part of this burnout conversation because people have a lot of ideas and they want to try new things. But because of this moment we're in where there's so much uncertainty, maybe we're more risk adverse than we were in the past administrations that we're working with, you know, aren't sure of those next steps. I just want to encourage especially young people that are coming into the field, people who are new to hang on to those ideas 
put them in a parking lot, put them in the notes app on your phone, whatever that is, because they might not be the idea for this moment, um, but they might be a great idea for the future within your own organization and a different organization, a side project you want to do. Um, I think that's really valuable advice to hang on to those things and remember that your creativity is important and valuable and don't get frustrated if those things aren't coming to fruition right now. But I just want to encourage people that are having great ideas or want to try something new, but maybe this doesn't feel like the moment or you're being told no, hang on to that passion, hang on to that creativity, and don't let that be part of your burnout. Um, because we all do have great ideas. We all have things that we want to try and and to move ourselves and our organizations forward. But uh, yeah, it's just a weird moment. So I I really love that advice that she gave and just wanted to lift that up and make sure everyone walks away uh, remembering uh, that last moment from our conversation. Well, thank you all for joining us today on There's No Business Like. I loved having this conversation with Krista. Love spending time with all of my fellow pod squad hosts. Uh, we hope you all have a wonderful APAP conference if you're headed there and we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait. What was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I need to do like my high school musical, like, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my favorite moment in that movie when Ryan and Sharp are like, <laughs> yeah, fun memories.